Uh, well, thank you for the invitation to be with you this morning. Uh, I've got to know Chris a little bit over the last couple of years, uh, so it's nice to uh, finally make it up to, to Otley. Let me pray before we look at this. Micah 5. Uh, Father God, we've just sung asking that uh, we would meet your son uh, in your word. So we, we pray now that uh, in your mercy you pour your spirit, uh, that these words that he wrote centuries, millennia ago, uh, would become words of truth and life to us. Open our eyes uh, and lift them to the throne above, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I wonder how much you think of yourself as a, a victorious church, uh, as a powerful church, uh, or how much you think of yourselves as powerful people, conquering people. Uh, every now and again, you meet Christians who, uh, who do think of themselves uh, as conquerors, uh, who feel that their church, their ministry is one of power and glory, but far more often, I think, uh, we feel weak, we feel defeated. Uh, perhaps particularly uh, in England at the moment, uh, if we've been around a while, we know that the church seems at least to be diminishing. Now I know there's a difference between the cultural Christianity of years gone by and, and genuine Bible-believing, gospel-believing Christianity, but it seems, doesn't it, that the world is, is rising up and the church is increasingly being sidelined and mocked. Things that we hold uh, strongly to, in, in our beliefs, whether about Christ or, or some of our moral positions, are, are, are being seen not just as a bit silly, but as possibly evil. I think that's one of the main changes over the last 10, 20 years. When I was at university in the late 90s, um, I think my, my friends who weren't Christians looked at the Christians and thought, well, it's silly what they believe in. How can you believe a man rose from the dead? How can you believe he walked on water? It's silly, but it's harmless. Whereas now, what I think we see, particularly with some of the students, I think, is that they're seen not just as a bit foolish, but as possibly evil for thinking what they think on things like marriage and gender. It would be very easy as Christians for us to therefore think of ourselves as hugely outnumbered, see the enemies all around, and duck for cover. Even in our own lives, we may be very aware of things out there that look like they're going to defeat us. An illness, a particular battle with sin, maybe just life circumstances. We, we, we just get overwhelmed. And never mind putting a spiritual gloss on it. We, we're looking ahead of the week and thinking, I, I just can't handle what is coming my way in life. Uh, even if we're feeling confident at the moment, you don't need to know much about life to know that at some point, Things will come at us. Enemies, if you like, will come at us. And we will feel weak. Yesterday I was at a family wedding up, up north. My family were from Cumberland. We were up in, uh, in Penrith for a wedding. Uh, and during the, the vows, my cousin was getting married. He, he was at the front with his, his new wife. Uh, and um, during the vows, the, the bride's grandma clapped. It was a horrible thud. And she just clapped in the pew. Clapped her head on the, on the pew. And half the church noticed and half didn't. And it's a strange experience. The first two or three pews were, 
looking forward and smiling, full of joy, looking at the bride. And the back half of the church, you can see what happened, looking in horror at, at Granny Claps. And it was a bit of a take on life, really. Sometimes we're, we're full of joy. Life's going well, things are flourishing, we, we see the beauty in life. But at other times, well, we see death approaching. That The people in Micah 5 uh, certainly saw death approaching. If you look down with me at verse 1, the call of Micah uh, to, to those in Jerusalem. He's speaking to the citizens of Jerusalem. Must your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. We're not going to get into all the historical detail. It'll take us too long this morning. But in essence, Micah, who's a contemporary of Isaiah, so we're about 700 to 730 years BC. Uh, Micah is speaking at a time when the big world power, the Assyrians, are at the gates of Jerusalem. We know this from other books of the Bible, uh, particularly books of Kings and Chronicles, that, that this Assyrian, think of the, kind of, I suppose the Nazi empire of the day, had swept through Israel, destroyed the northern kingdom, uh, had come down, circled and, and conquered all the villages and towns of, of Judea and were now at the gates of Jerusalem. And, and for the citizens inside the walls, they knew what that meant. It meant defeat was coming. The Assyrians were nasty pieces of work. Uh, they'd skin alive their victims once they conquered the city. Uh, verse 5, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. That the king of Israel is going to get slapped down, humiliated. And yet, there is some hope. Even as they see the enemy coming, even as they see defeat coming at them from the other side of the walls, there's hope, verse 2. And the hope comes from, well, hope comes from Potley. The hope comes from Wimborne. My little hometown. Uh, the hope comes, in other words, from a, a small town that wouldn't have been well known to, to the rest of, of the country, but had huge purposes in God's plan. Verse 2 But you, O Bethlehem Ephra, Ephrathra, hard to say, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. When Michael wants to encourage his, his people, wanting to, to lift their eyes so they wouldn't be terrified, thinking all is going to be defeat and disaster, he, 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 he took them to Google Maps. Look at this place. Uh, look at Bethlehem. So again, this morning is, whenever enemies are on your horizons, the conquest of sin, the fear of disease and death, and maybe it's the thought that as a church, we, we feel small compared to the town around. Uh, look at Bethlehem, says Micah. Because this ruler is coming. And uh, this ruler has two origins, two birthplaces. Uh, on our birth certificates, you only ever, ever get one place, don't you? Uh, I was born in Poole in Dorset. But, but this ruler has two origins. The first is Bethlehem. It's such a small town in Old Testament terms. Uh, but it's not even listed when when the Israelites go in and conquer um, Israel. Remember in the book of Joshua, which is full of um, details about where each tribe is going to live? Bethlehem doesn't even make the list. 
and that it's 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 a, it's a small town, not not two or three houses strung together, but a very small town. Uh, somewhere like Wantage, the best place I can think of is Wantage down south uh, in I don't know where it's Berkshire, is it? What um, Wantage? Now, some of you may have heard of Wantage, some of you may not. It's not big, it's not famous. Uh, it is a small town, but it had one wantage, had one thing going for it. It's the birthplace of Alfred the Great, and the only king of England who's ever called the Great. That's the one thing it's got going for it. And as these citizens of, of Jerusalem heard Micah say, what is going to come, a ruler from Bethlehem, the one thing they know about Bethlehem is that although it was small, although it was unimpressive, it was the place where David the Great was born, the first king of Israel. And so, of course, these verses are the verses that, that prophesy and predict that Jesus the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They're the verses that, that the, um, uh, the theologians of the day quote to King Herod. When King Herod says, worried by the wise men who've, who've come to him, saying that, that, that a ruler has been born, when Herod says to his theologians, where's the Messiah going to be born? They quote Micah 5, verse 2. And they quoted in Matthew 2, verse 5. They match quite nicely. You need to remember that there's nothing significant in that. That's just a... <laughs> um, so in Matthew 2, verse 5, they say, yes, Bethlehem is going to be the birthplace of this Messiah. So, so verse 2 tells us that, that God's rescuer is going to be born in a normal place. He's human. He's going to be born of a woman, verse 3. That God is going to give up his people. They're going to be handed over to the enemy until that time when she who is in labour has given birth. She who's in labour, Mary, until she gives birth, God's people will seemingly be defeated. But, but this, this, this ruler has got another origin. That little phrase, come forth, comes twice in the verse, doesn't it? Uh, first of all, it's from Bethlehem that he will come forth. But verse 2, this ruler's coming forth is also from old, from ancient days. That, old, that phrase from old, from ancient days, it is used in the Old Testament to describe God. Uh, Psalm 90 and uh, verse 2 talks about God uh, being from everlasting to everlasting. It's that same, that same phrase. Uh, in Deuteronomy, that great verse of comfort. Um, underneath are the everlasting arms. It's a word used to describe God. It's telling us, in other words, that Jesus' origins are not simply human, but he is from, well, he's eternal. He is from everlasting. And the only one who is everlasting is God. Uh, the Son of God is the one who's going to come and rule. It's not, of course, that God the Father made God the Son at some point back in history. God the Son is, well, he's God. He is eternal. And so this rescuer, says Micah, uh, the one who's going to come, well, he is going to be both divine and human. He is going to be the God-man. And suddenly we've got hope, haven't we? Whatever it is in your, in your life that is, that is looking like it's going to conquer you is not stronger than the God-man. That There is so much in life that is stronger than us on our own, isn't it? Uh, we see all these campaigns. It lets beat cancer. I, I don't want to be insensitive, but we are not going to beat cancer. 
We're not going to beat death ultimately. Maybe it was some, some wonder drug we found and uh, a cure will calm us. But we're not going to beat death on our own. Even if we cure cancer, well, something else will come along. As human beings left for our own devices, if we're honest, we are weak. There is much out there that can conquer us. But there is nothing that can conquer the God-man. Nothing that can conquer Christ. If, if my victory, if my rescue is in his hands, then I've got hope. And see, these coming not just for himself. This ruler isn't just coming to, to show those on earth. What's he coming? Verse 3. He, that's Christ. Oh, sorry, that's God. He will give up his people until the time when she was labelled to give birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now in Micah's context, he's saying, look, actually the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, they are going to beat us up for a long time. The Israelites were taken into exile, you might remember, in the, the rest of the story of the Old Testament. We will be taken off into foreign lands. But when the ruler comes, when Christ comes, it's going to be good news, not just for him, but for us. The brothers will be gathered back. God the Son, if you like, is coming to make us his brothers and sisters. And what's he going to do, verse 4? We're going to conquer. He, Christ, will stand and he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Verse 5, he shall be their peace. That Michael even addresses these Assyrians. Verse 5 continues, When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places, we'll raise against him seven shepherds, eight princes of men. And verse 6, this shepherd will deliver us from the Assyrian. Now he's speaking in terms that the people of his day would understand. Assyrians here, I think, just sound like generic bad guys. Anyone you don't like nowadays um, gets called a Nazi, don't they? Say so, if you're for Donald Trump, you're a Nazi, according to one party. If you're for whoever's standing against you, you're another. Hey, we just throw the word around generically, don't we? And we don't mean they're actually followers of the Third Reich, but it's just become the word that you call someone you disagree with. The, the bad guy is the Nazi. I think Assyrian here is, is the same thing. There are real Assyrians about to conquer Jerusalem, but eventually they'll go away and the Babylonians will come. But the Babylonians will just be the next generation of Syrians. There's always someone wanting to attack God's church and God's people. But one day, well one day, Micah says, this ruler will come and he will bring peace. He will conquer. So, so imagine a faithful Israelite listening to Micah. Okay, 700-ish years BC. And what's we call it's called Reuben. He listens. And he's got his grandson on his knee. I was sat at the back there with my little daughter on my knee, and obviously she doesn't understand everything. So when we were talking about Spartacus um, and, uh, and and crucifixion, and um, uh, as, as the illustration being explained, and, and, and you know, from the front it would say, "So we're all going to be crucified." My, my daughter said, "Are we all going to be crucified?" She had understood that it was just illustrating what was going on. So imagine a little boy sat on the knee of his grandfather as Micah preaches. And he says, Grandpa, what's going on? What's going on? And Grandpa says, well, what Micah is saying, what God is saying to us is, one day, God will come and he will conquer. One day he will come, he will conquer. 
Well, the, the grandson grows up, and what are we, 600 BC, and there's no sight of him. But he's faithful, he trusts God's word. So he sits his own grandson on his knee, little Benjamin sits on his knee and says, look, our hope is this, one day he will come, he will conquer. The Babylonians are out there now. But don't worry, trust God's word, he will come, he will conquer. He becomes old, the grandson grows up. And down the generations. To the eyes of sight, it looks like there is no hope. One set of bad guys replaces another. Assyrians are replaced by Babylonians. Babylonians are replaced by Persians and Medes. Medes are replaced by Greeks. Greeks are replaced by Romans. There are always enemies. And it seems like God has abandoned them. But this word of hope, he will come and he will conquer, is passed down the generations. Until... Well, until the Messiah comes. In Luke's Gospel, let me read you just a couple of verses. Remember when um, uh, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, is told that uh, he's, uh, he's going to have a son, and his son will be the great prophet who comes before the Messiah. Zechariah remembers this, uh, these prophecies from the Old Testament. And in, in Luke 1, let me read, I'm going to read from verse 68 of Luke 1. Zechariah hears this, this, this great news that Messiah is coming. And he says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Zechariah understands Jesus' coming as God sending his son to rescue us, as he promised by the prophets, from all our enemies. Zachariah, and from his father, and his father, and his father, this, this mantra, if you like, he will come, he will conquer, he will come, he will conquer. And Zachariah is able to say he has come, and so he will conquer. He has come at last. And Zachariah writes, with the coming of Christ, all our enemies are conquered. Uh, we, we talk uh, most regularly about Christ's victory over sin, don't we? As he dies bearing our sin, all that would bar us entry to, to paradise and eternal life is dealt with. Christ conquers sin at the cross as he takes yours and my sin on his shoulders, bears God's, bears God's anger at it, and rises again three days later. Sometimes as Christians we fear that our sin, that great enemy within, will overwhelm us. But Christ is more powerful than sin. All our sin and guilt has been faithful. So whatever we feel, the truth is Christ has conquered. What about Satan? Uh, time and again in the New Testament we're told that we have a great enemy, Satan, crowning around like a lion, waiting to devour us. But also we're told that Christ has conquered Satan. Triumphed uh, over him. At the cross, Paul talks in Colossians 2 about Christ disarming the rulers and authorities, and, and they're, the, they're the spiritual backbites. Triumphing over them in his death. How? What well, does Christ uh, pays our debts? He disarms Satan. What, what can Satan do to you? How can Satan bar you entry to, to paradise, to heaven? 
Well, the only thing he could do is accuse you and say before God, this man, this woman, they don't deserve entry. Look at what they've done and read out that the rap sheet, yeah, the sheet of charges. What do we read in Colossians 2? Well, let's paraphrase that Christ has ripped up the charge sheet. That, that everything that Christ, that, that, sorry, that Satan could legitimately accuse you of has been paid, cancelled. And so Satan is defeated. He's a lawyer without anything, without any arguments, without a case. There's no other way he can stop us getting in. He's not judge. He's not gatekeeper. He is gone, conquered. So he can still cause mischief and damage for now, but he can't bar us entry. Uh, even death itself is defeated uh, by Christ. Uh, as Christ dies, he, he really dies. And the Son of God, because he's become man, he dies. God his human nature, he dies. His soul and his body are parted, aren't they? Just as ours are when we die. So his body is taken and buried in the grave. His soul goes to paradise. One of the last things Jesus says on the cross is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Or well, he says to the thief next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Christ's soul goes to paradise, his body is buried in the ground. But both of them, and this, this is sort of deep theology, but, 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 but glorious theology, both his soul and his body are still united to his divine nature. That's why it matters that Jesus is God and man. He, he, he remains God and man even as he goes to the cross, even as he's buried in the grave, even as his soul and body are torn apart. They're both still united to his person, the Son of God. The Son of God on that Saturday has a spirit, a soul in heaven, and a body in the grave. There's a Scottish minister called Henry Martin, who's got, a, I think, a lovely illustration of this. He talks about a warrior with a sword in his scabbard strapped to his side. And he says that on, 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 on Saturday, that is Christ died. Uh, he's like a warrior who's drawn his sword from his scabbard. He holds his sword in one hand and his scabbard is on, on his hip. They are separated, sword from scabbard, but they're both still united to the warrior's body. Okay, the warrior is still in control of both. And so Christ is able to conquer death. And death does not have a last word over him. And soul and body are reunited on that Sunday morning. Everything stood against Christ on the cross. That earth, if you like, provided the wood for the cross, the iron for the nails. That hell and Satan stood against him. Entering Judas. In order that he might betray Christ to the Roman authorities. Humanity stood against him, Jew and Gentile. Even heaven, we might say, in one sense, stood against Christ as the sword of God's anger fell upon him. And yet he conquered. He conquered all and everything that could stand against us. We've talked about films already this morning. Uh, there's a, a film with Brad Pitt in it, uh, whose title I couldn't remember, but it's the story of the, the Trojan War. And he plays Achilles, uh, the great Greek hero. Uh, and at one point, Achilles goes out to fight uh, the Trojans. And, and they agree that rather than both armies fighting and wiping out hundreds, thousands of people, they'll each send their champion out. 
So Brad Pitt goes out as Achilles, the great Greek champion, and the, the Trojans send out this huge guy, massive, great, hulking guy. Uh, and Brad Pitt, Achilles, runs towards him. He starts dragging, he drags his swords in the sand, and he leaps up, jumps, chops the guy's head off, and lands. And he looks at the Trojan army, the enemies, and says, is there anyone else? He screams at them, is there anyone else? Can anyone else come against me? Can anyone else stand against me? Can anyone else come and defeat me? And they just retreat. At the cross, is it when Christ cried out, is there anyone else? Can anyone else defeat me? And the answer is no. Nothing else, nothing, nobody can conquer Christ. This ruler, this God-man, uh, will crush all his enemies under his feet. And so he says to us this morning, well, trust me. He, he knows, and he has promised, that one day, if you like, that, that victory will be applied and all our enemies will be removed from our experience. But he knows that for now, living in this age, we still feel the pain of many of those enemies. It's not that he's removed sin from our experience. But he has removed it as an enemy that can bar us entry to paradise. It's not yet that he's removed Satan from our, our sphere of living. But he will do one day. It's not yet that death as an experience has been taken away from us, or illness, or cancer. And so when we come into contact with these things, we do still weep and mourn. Christians aren't meant to be kind of Pollyanna, just smiling all the time. There's a reason we've been given the book of Psalms, full of songs of mourning. I don't want this morning to come across as saying that we, we should be people who, who never cry, who never weep. No, that, we wouldn't be human. But behind and underneath all that, we have the confidence that all these things are defeated. So Christ has come to me, trust me, that whatever is standing against you, whatever terrifies you, whatever enemy is looming large in your eyes. I am stronger. They will not win. He will come again and he will conquer fully and finally. Because he's already come and he's already conquered at the cross. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Uh, what Micah tells us back in chapter 5. Uh, Micah 5, what are we doing now? Look at verse 7. Uh, looking forward to this day when the Messiah comes, verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, uh, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jude, Jude, uh, Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest. A young lion among the flocks of the sheep, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces. There's none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted over your enemies, and your enemies shall be cut off. The remnant of Judah there are those who trust in this promise. There's a believing group throughout the rest of the Old Testament. You see that in people like Zechariah, who are trusting when 
Christ finally does arrive. But eventually it becomes the church. The church, in other words, says Micah, are going to be scattered among many peoples, not just in Jerusalem or Israel, scattered among many peoples. The church now is international, isn't it? Every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, the church is scattered to the four corners of the earth. And as God's people, do you see the two pictures that describe us? We're to be Jew and lions. Jew and lions. The Jew picture, I think, is one of refreshment. Uh, as God's people are scattered among the different uh, cultures, nations, religious groupings, the church becomes a refreshing Jew as they preach the gospel and people find life. Jew brings life, doesn't it, in the morning as the, 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 the water settles and the plants drink it in or the animals lick it up. Jew brings life. It is through the church, in other words, that this God-man, this ruler, will bring life and refreshment. He has gone away for a while, gone back to heaven. He has sat on the throne. He's still working, still conquering, but through his people, through the church, life comes. How is God going to bring new life to the people of Otley? Not through the angel Gabriel, the archangel Michael. Uh, Not through writing in the sky, but through the church, through the faithful people of God. And through you. And that is his strategy. Uh, You are due to all of you. But you're also lions. It just doesn't feel true, does it? Lions, conquering lions. Uh, That's the image. Uh, In verse uh, 8. Uh, the line, the line is that the king of beasts, uh, the one that no one can stand against. Uh, Michael says that the church are like a batch of lions sent out uh, into the world. All your enemies, verse 9, shall be cut off. In other words, you are conquerors. To this weak, defeated people, you are conquerors. It's very reminiscent of Paul's words in Romans 8. But we're more than conquerors through Christ. Now we don't feel like conquerors, do we? We don't feel like this triumphant army. Okay, the, the, I don't know, the, the biggest number you've ever had at a morning service is still a drop in the ocean compared to the town at large. I say that because it's true of every church I've ever been in. It's just matter in the biggest church in the biggest city in, in the UK. It's still a drop in the ocean compared to the numbers who aren't in church that morning. We feel weak and we feel beleaguered. So over in America, America a couple of years ago, and then down in um, Kentucky in the Southern States, I was going to a conference and I got on a bus and the guy who had my English accent, the bus driver, and could see that I was confused, didn't know where I was going. And he said, oh, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a minister. I'm Christian church minister, church elder. And I'm, I'm going to a conference. And he said, oh, you must be here for the, the, together for the gospel conference at the, whatever building it was called. It's great to have you in our city. This is amazing. A bus driver, a bus driver knows that this Christian conference is going on and he's excited about it. That has never happened to me in the UK. When, when you get a sat on a train and opened your Bible and someone, oh, brilliant, you must be a Christian. Great. Me too. Well, this doesn't happen very often, does it? We feel small and believing. But Micah says, whatever you feel like, the church are like lions. 
Well, is he? Is he just going wrong? Is he talking about a stage that will happen in the future, a glorious future, where suddenly all these will become ninety percent Christian? And I don't think so. Uh, the soldier is like the, the general. Like the, the gladiators were like Spartacus, to go back to our earlier illustration. In other words, well, what did Christ look like when he conquered? The first couple of verses talk about Christ conquering in mind. But what did that conquest look like? Well, did Jesus arrive in a chariot, surrounded by angels? No. At the royal palace? No. When Jesus conquered sin, Satan, and death, our three greatest enemies, he was naked and nailed to a tree on a hill in a backwater province of the Roman Empire. It didn't look powerful. It didn't look like this was the great victory of God. He didn't look like the roaring lion. He certainly didn't look like the son of God. He didn't look like refreshing dew. It didn't look like this moment was the moment where refreshing waters and new life was being brought to earth. It looked like a humiliated, defeated, stripped naked Jewish man was being utterly conquered by the Romans. And yet, it was the moment where God defeated sin, Satan and death. It was the moment where all enemies were vanquished. It looked like one thing, defeat, powerlessness, humiliation, but it was the opposite. And that is God's way. That is why the church so often looks and feels weak. I don't know if you, you sort of run evangelistic events and turned up, and even as a sort of faithful church member thought, oh man, this is, mm, this is not great. Uh, I remember back at, um, when I was at university, we ran a we tried to run a little event in the, in the hall of residence I was living in. And the film, the film Gladiator had come out. It was a Gladiator this morning. The film Gladiator had come out. We thought we'd show this film um, and then get uh, a local church worker to do a talk off the back of it on how Jesus is you know, the true saviour. So we booked a room in the hall of residence. Um, got, got in touch with the church worker. Invited people. Uh, got the little Bible study group I was leading to... to Come along, invite people. Got to that evening, the entire Bible group melted away apart from one faithful lad with Paul. Suddenly they're all busy. So we just had one Christian there. Who brought one friend? So we had one non-Christian turn up. Uh, the event was meant to start at half seven. At about twenty past seven, the, the hall of residence said, "Nah, you can't use the common room, but you can use the little seminar room tucked away." But I'm afraid it hasn't got a TV. So we're now running an event where we're meant to be showing a film, but we haven't got a TV. We've got one non-Christian turned up. Five minutes before it started, I got a phone call from the guy speaking saying, really sorry, I'm on my way. I broke my leg today. I'm just out of hospital. I haven't had time to watch the movie, but I will still come and give the talk. So there's four of us sat in a room, supposedly for an event where he talks off the back of a film that we can't show, that the speaker hasn't seen, and it, it was agony. The speaker would say things, you know, he would say, he's called Ben. He'd say things like, I, you know, I don't know, perhaps, perhaps some of you here aren't Christians. 
And we're all thinking, yeah, we know, it's just him. <laughs> it's just Tom. And Tom knows it too. It was awkward. It was weak. It didn't look like the power of God at work. And yet Tom was born again. And it's what a Christ sheep for this day. As with Christ's conquest, so with the conquest of his church. God's plan for Otley is very unlikely for you to grow to be, I don't know, 50,000 strong, fill stadiums, for you as church members to walk down the street and say, fantastic, the Christians are here. It's likely to look and feel like the crucifixion looked and felt, seemingly weak, empty and powerless. But actually, to the eyes of faith, God's plan to conquer and refresh the nations. So, he will come. He will conquer. Whatever enemy terrifies you today is not strong enough to separate you from the love of God and the paradise that awaits. And until that paradise finally arrives, go out in weakness, know that you are God's Jew and light. That however timid you feel, the strength is in him. The enemies have been defeated. And you are his plan for bringing refreshment and life to the town of Let's pray. Father God, we pray for the gift of your Spirit who enables uh, your people to see that in the seeming defeat and humiliation of Christ is life and victory. We pray now that you would give us confidence that Christ has come and he has conquered. Uh, that as we tremble before the many enemies that seem able to overwhelm us, would we know that though we are weak, he is strong and that he has done everything that we might have eternal uh, bliss and happiness, that we might be sheep in his pasture, that we will arrive at those green pastures, lie down behind, beside the quiet waters. And until then, give us the courage to know that although we, we feel weak, it is through your people, this remnant, uh, that you are conquering the world. So Father, bless this church in particular, I pray. Uh, would many come to faith in Christ, in this town of Otley, in the next months and years. But give them perseverance until that great day when Christ returns to wipe away every tear. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.